We're in this series called Emotional Intelligence. We started it last week, and we're talking about uh, the ability to be aware of our emotions and how they affect other people. And you might say, well, how does this, where is this in the Bible? You know, maybe, may, I came to church today to talk about, you know, God and theology, and we're talking about emotions, and I, whoa, I'm not ready for that yet. If you're anything like me, uh, I'm not much of an emotional guy unless it comes, to, less it's more of like the things about God. You know, that's the one thing that stirs up my emotions a lot is God and worship and his word. And, and so uh, what are we talking about with emotional intelligence? Well, I believe that as we go through this series and we learn to get emotionally mature, uh, not just spiritually mature, but sometimes people like compartmentalize uh, emotions and spirituality and relationships. They're all separate, but God says they're all equal. As a matter of fact, last, uh, last series we did, we talked about the heart and what it means, what the heart means, how to love God with all of our heart. And we said that the heart in the Bible is our mind, our will, and our emotions. And so God wants every part of us he wants to change us from the inside out, all of us, not just our intellectual side, but our, also our emotional side and how we treat other people. So that's what we're talking about. And I'm going to start off with a reminder of why we think this is important. It's this. Humans are made in God's image, but we're also born with this sin nature. Learning to be self-aware will help Christians live out this new nature that they have. Okay? And so... We were made, God said everything was good and very good and, and everything was good at the beginning, but you know, Adam and Eve at the first decided to go against God, away from God, and that caused us all to be cursed with this broken sin nature that wants to go the opposite way, the opposite direction. So things inside of us are broken now. We are a sinful people by nature. We're not God's children and good by nature. You often hear people say, well, people are basically good, but the, that's not what the Bible says. No, the Bible says that every part of us is infected with this sin nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it does mean that every, every part of us is infected with this sinful nature that causes us then to hurt ourselves and hurt other people. And ultimately, we offend and bother God sometimes with our sin as well. But we're talking about how can we get more self-aware in our relationships? How can we reverse this sin nature or cure this sin nature. Now as Christians, we have a new nature added to us. The Bible says he, God gave us his spirit. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel 36, 26, this is a prophecy. All the guys in the Old Testament were struggling to be nice to each other, to love God and to love others. And God says this, I am going to cure your problem when I come to you and I change your heart. Your heart is, is deceitfully wicked and it is ruined and you're hurting people all the time and you're sinning. And so I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I'm going to give you a tender, responsive heart. That's what we need. If we want to get better at our emotional life uh, and how we treat other people, how we love ourselves even, we've got to get rid of this stony, stubborn heart that we were born with, and we need God to come in and do this heart surgery and change us 
from the inside out. And that's what happens when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, okay? That's why God sent his son to die on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins and we could be born again and then he would put his spirit in us. And then 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that if anyone then is in Christ, has trusted in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new life has begun. The new has come. This is saying that when you trust in Jesus, you have a new nature now that can do good, that can love people, that can follow God's ways. Now, you might be sitting out there and saying, all right, but I've been a Christian for a while and things aren't changing as fast as I want them to change. Maybe you heard from another preacher online or something or uh, from some other church that said, if you would just trust in Jesus, all your problems will go away. But that never, God, Jesus never says that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, he says, you're going to have trouble in this world. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world, but you're going to have trouble. But I have overcome the world. And so what he is saying is, I'm going to overcome the world by teaching you in this evil age to be lovers of each other and to be lovers of yourselves and to be lovers of God. And I'm going to do that by giving you this new nature through the Spirit. Part of my story is this. Uh, I believed from a young age in Jesus. I, I understood the gospel, but uh, I was pulled away by my old nature into addiction. And so as I, uh, as I got clean at the age of 26, clean and sober, uh, I realized that while I was physically 26, I was probably emotionally an adolescent boy, because I realized that I had used, you know, things, substances, alcohol, partying, you know, attention from other people, watching certain things, you know, indulging in all kinds of sin out there in the world. I, I realized that I was doing that to cope with sin. I was doing that to cope with my emotions, hide my emotions. I didn't understand my emotions. I wanted to run from my emotions. And so by the time I got clean, even though uh, I had this spiritual side. I, I just went crazy with studying the Bible because that is the one area, again, as I said, where God has a hold of my heart and, and the things of God make me want to just know more and more and more about him, okay? And I'm emotional about that. But, and so I started studying God's word and getting into theology and intellectually I was growing as a Christian but I realized as I started getting involved with church and being around other people because God doesn't just want us to be lone rangers out there studying our Bibles in a cave somewhere and not in relationship with other people when I started realizing that God wanted me to be a part of a local church and to serve and to have relationships, I started realizing, man, my emotional side of my life really needs to mature a little bit, you know, because uh, if I have to deal with people, uh, I'm going to have to start being more self-aware on uh, how, how I affect people, how when I come around or the things that I say, are they going to bother people or offend people and hurt people? And so I started on this journey of trying to become more self-aware uh, because God really calls us to be that. As God wants the whole person, he wants our mind, our will, our emotions, our heart, our strength, our soul, all of that. He wants to come in and change all of that. And so that's what we're talking about today is three markers of a self-aware person. So we're going to get a little practical about 
What does it look like to be this person then, an emotionally mature, self-aware person that can handle himself uh, when he has emotions come up, when he's around other people and their emotions come up and they don't communicate it the best or we learn how to communicate so that we can be better lovers of people. And really what this is, I'm going to give you a theological word here. It's called sanctification. You know, God came in, and when you trust in Jesus, you're justified. You're going to heaven. But now there's this process of he's working on you and me until we go home to be with him. He's working on us. We're this continual work in progress. It doesn't mean perfection. He doesn't require perfection of us. But we know that he's working inside of us when these things start to die off in our lives. When we start to become more uh, spiritually mature, relationally and emotionally mature. And so let's get into these three markers. The first is this. Self-aware people have the courage to articulate their faults and strengths They're secure enough to take a compliment or listen to a rebuke. Now, this is is tough, right? This is what we need in our marriage relationships. We need this with our kids. We need this at work. We need it in church. We need to be able to uh, articulate our faults, to acknowledge them, and sometimes it takes courage. And we need to be secure enough to be able to give each other feedback, And for some reason, uh, it's easier to take feedback from some than others. Like my wife and I, you know, over the years, you know, when we first got married and she would give me feedback and I would give her feedback, we would would basically blame each other. Like, whoa, 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 don't tell me. Don't try to correct me. You're just as bad in this area or that area, right? And uh, But eventually I started to realize that God gave me my wife so that she could constantly point out all these things in me and that would make me a better person. <laughs> among other things, among other things, the Bible calls... Uh, uh, you're, so I'm just, this is a little side note here, okay? When God created man and woman, um, he created man. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he says, I'm going to give him a helper and it's the woman. And now they're, you know, they're equal, but they have these roles, right? And then Jesus came in the New Testament and he says, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send you another helper, And so oftentimes we joke around and we say, my wife is the second Holy Spirit. I've got the first Holy Spirit convicting me. Now I've got the second Holy Spirit convicting me, telling me where I need to be uh, uh, following God and doing right. And so after a while, I started realizing my wife uh, had some wisdom and knowledge to share with me that God had actually gave her that role in my life in the first place. And I had to accept that. I had to start accepting that. And so there were times where I was, I was growing in ministry and starting to be around people and leading groups and stuff. We would leave and, and she would be like, you know, honey, you should let others talk sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was like, I'd grip my teeth, you know, I'm like, okay. Yeah, maybe I should, you know? And then I'm like, honey, you should stay home for group tonight. I'm gonna go without you. <laughs> Uh, but eventually I started looking to her advice, you know, looking, I, I, I share most of all my struggles with her. Like Lord, uh, I ask her, uh, Crystal, I say, uh, Lord, what do you, or Crystal, what, what do you think I should do in this area? Or here's what's going on in that area. And she has lots of wisdom to give me and feedback. And I go to her first before I go to anyone else for feedback. It was hard to accept at first. Now, one thing I do struggle with is when my teenager tells me, that I need to stop doing something or start doing something. That's, that's a whole other level of, 
humility. If you've gotten there with your kids, I mean, man, more power to you. Please help me. I'd love to talk afterwards when your kids try to correct you and tell you how to live life. Uh, but, but it is the sign of being a self-aware, emotionally mature person when you can take feedback, even compliments. Sometimes we like shrug off compliments like, wow, you were, that was awesome. Or wow, you're so gifted. Or uh, you're so good in this area. And some of us, you know, struggle with that. We're like, we're, we've struggled with insecurity issues our whole life. So it's like, yeah, we just like, we don't acknowledge when someone gives us a compliment. But God wants us to receive compliments from people. He gave us gifts, and hopefully people can point those out in us and give God the glory along with giving us a compliment, and we can accept it that way. Say, yes, you know, all glory to God. Thank you for that. Yeah, he, he's the one who's working in me and has gifted me. So, again, this takes a lot of courage to be able to handle uh, feedback even, not just compliments, but a rebuke. Rebuke is a hard word. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, this is after Jesus died and left, and churches were popping up everywhere, and Paul was like a leader of all these churches, and he was writing letters to these churches, and Paul writes a letter, the Corinthian church was messed up. Okay, they were struggling emotionally, they were struggling spiritually, they were fighting, they were gossiping against each other, there was sexual immorality and problems going on in this church, and Paul basically writes the letter of 1 Corinthians as a rebuke, as a correction to these people saying, guys, you need to understand, you need to walk what you live, you need to understand why God gave us the church so we could have a place where we could be accountable to one another and hold each other accountable and and give each other correction and feedback at the time. And oftentimes people don't think of church like that anymore. You know, they're like, no, this is a place where I show up, you entertain me, I feel a little bit of God and then I leave. But really church is more than that. We're this large family, guys. Whether you're new here today or you've been here from the day we planted, we are a family that shares things, that we talk, we build relationships. Now, it takes a while to build these relationships, and it takes effort on all of our parts, you know, to show up, to reach out to each other, to go to small groups, to join in relationships, and and, and really communicate. So it takes time, but God created the church this way. But Paul is, is, in his words, I want to read them in just a second. He gets a little frustrated with them, you know, and this is God's divine inspired word talking through Paul. And so God allows this frustration in Paul a little bit. But Paul is like, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he's like saying, okay, hey, I've said all this stuff to you. Now let me reiterate, you know, you need to take this like a man. Have you ever heard that, that, that uh, illustration or that, that phrase before? take it like a man. That means like stand up and you're going to hear what I have to say to you. Here's what Paul says. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Now that word that he uses right there for act like men, it really is translated to be courageous. And so this doesn't just apply to men, but I'll pick on men for a little while, give the women a break for a little bit, and I'll pick on men. But he's saying, all this correction I've told you, all this stuff like, hey, this so-and-so person is acting 
terrible. They're acting like they're not even a believer. They're causing divisions. They're uh, doing some terrible sexual immorality things like you guys need to be uh, holding each other accountable. And it's going to take courage to do that. And that's what he's saying here. Act like men. Be courageous in evaluating yourselves. Be courageous in being self-aware, in taking correction. And Paul, uh, by the end of his second letter, because he wrote two letters to the, the, the church in Corinth, by the second letter, he's even more harsh with them. And this is the last chapter of the last letter that he wrote to the Corinth. And it says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? He's basically saying, if you can't love each other, if you can't quit sinning so much, if you can't feel brokenhearted over uh, the things that you do that go against God's word and, and hurting others and hurting God and hurting yourself, if you can't stop doing that, as I've already tried to give you correction before, then you should examine yourselves to see whether you're even in the faith or not. That's harsh words, right? I'm like, whoa. You know, now there is, there is a doctrine of, you know, being saved and not, we can't lose our salvation. And no matter what, when the moment we trust in Jesus, we have eternal life. It says that in John 3.16. And eternal life, I believe, cannot be taken away from us. But if there are people in the church that claim to be Christians, but you can't see any fruit, they're not self-aware, they won't take correction, they won't take any feedback, then maybe you should examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Maybe we need to go back to the basics of the gospel message, how God loves you no matter how far you've gone and what you've done. Maybe we need to go back that so that you can have Christ in you and changing you from the inside out. He says it a little less harsh in Romans 12, 3. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Here's the problem, again, with some Christian churches or the church at large and the world. It's that we don't want to hear rebukes anymore. We don't want to hear anything that challenges us anymore. If someone offends me from a correction, guess what I can do? I can leave that church and I can start watching church on YouTube or Facebook or I can go down the road to the seven other churches 15 minutes away and I can, I can go to a place where they barely know me or I can watch it on TV and they don't have to say anything about my life and I'm not gonna let anybody in because I justify the way that I live and who I am and how I treat people and I don't want anybody to tell me anything different. That is the sad part about what's happening to the Christian church and we've got all these different denominations and people disagreeing about little things that don't really matter as much as the gospel. And that's where we're at as a church today. And that's why I'm coming to you to say, look, self-aware people are courageous enough to be honest about themselves, how they're living, and they're willing to, to put themselves in relationships that where they can be held accountable and people can give honest feedback to one another. This is how God made the church so that we could grow as people 
that can become more emotionally, spiritually, and relationally mature. This, this verse talks of humility. Don't think of yourselves of greater than what you really are. That's my next point. Self-aware people are humble and teachable when someone points out a weakness. They avoid sin, sinful responses to sin and show a willingness to own their own trash. Humble and teachable when someone points out a weakness. I know, as I said before, that is hard when someone does it. So the right way to do it is to be in a relationship with person. I can't just call out so-and-so that I barely know and say, look how you're living, right? I've got to have this equity in their life where I can actually say something. Uh, I've got to have, they have to know that I love them. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. We've got to do those two equally, right? I can't just go speak the truth all the time without any love, but I can't go always be loving someone and not tell the truth. They, they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Really loving someone is being willing to point out a weakness, but I'm not saying to go judge everybody that you see, right? The Bible really says we need to examine ourselves inside the church, believers. We need to, this is really a message for, for people who claim to know Jesus. Now, what I am saying is that when you do come to know Jesus, for a person who doesn't know Jesus, he will work on you in these areas that I'm sure that we all can agree we need to grow. But the way it works in the church to call out people on their sin, there's a special way that Jesus actually teaches us how to do back in Matthew 16. It's a very gracious way. In Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, now let me stop right there real quick. Here's my, my geeky theological side coming out of me again. The earliest manuscripts that we uh, translated these verses from do not have against you in it. The earliest and best manuscripts do not have those words against you in it. And so the church for thousands of years has known that whether it's someone sinning just against you personally or just sinning in general and you know that they need help and need to be called out on it, it says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the first step. The second step, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you see that when you need to confront someone and give them some feedback on some areas if they claim to be a Christian, they, there's still a gracious way. You go to them alone. You don't go talking behind their back. You don't go gossip. You don't go to some other person and say, so-and-so is doing this. I can't believe them. No, God wants us to be gracious and he wants us to be courageous and we go to them one-on-one -on -one and we have that conversation. This avoids that sin of gossip where people talk behind each other's backs without ever actually going to the person. And then if they won't listen, take a few others with you that were witnesses and know what they're doing, basically. Not someone that you've said, hey, here's what they're doing. Take my word for it. Let's go. Team up with me and we're going to go get this person. No. And if they, if they have a, a heart of repentance, that's, that's, what's, you know, that's what God wants. He doesn't want us to not be, you know, quit. We can't quit sinning. He knows that. But he wants us to be broken over our sin. And the church is called to call people out on that. 
Here's the third step. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. That basically means that you go to the leadership of the church and you try to get some help for this person and they refuse that. And they don't look at God's word and say, okay, that really is a sin and agree. If they, they can't come to that point where they're ready to submit to God and his word, then you basically have to say, kind of like what Paul was saying earlier, is maybe they're not even in the faith. You know, maybe they need to go and examine themselves. Maybe we need to get back to the gospel basics. And as we said before, that, you know, it's a sinful response to sin or being called out on your sin. Sinful responses to sin is not owning it, not repenting not acknowledging it. And so we have this uh, lesson on PursueGod.org that I wanted to reference, 10 Sinful Responses to Sin. It's on, uh, there's a cool little uh, article and a video you can watch on this and have a conversation with your family, with your friends, your small group. But here's some definitions or some examples of how it would be if someone came to correct you or give you a little bit, bit of feedback. Here's a sinful response, minimizing it. Say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Legitimizing it. So-and-so does it. Everybody does it. Therefore, I can do it. It's legitimate, right? Rationalizing it. Making it seem like it makes sense. Blame shifting. Saying, well, Somebody made me do it, or it's because of this happened in my life, or diversionary tactics like, look at them over there, they're worse than me. Partial confession, worldly grief, instead of godly grief that leads us to repentance, worldly grief is being sad that I got caught. Victimization, I'm the victim here, I didn't do anything wrong. Mere confection, but never really getting to that point of turning and repenting. Codifying sin, saying, well, uh, it's not, it's like, let's say alcoholism, okay, where it's called a disease, and I agree, I'm a, a recovering addict alcoholic, and so I will say that I have this genetic part of me that for some reason is predisposed to want to go to that as sin. But if I never call it sin, and I just say, well, it's just part of who I am, and I do that, right? I do it because it's a disease. Again, this is all sinful responses to sin. I want to show you uh, an example of blame shifting in Genesis where God created man and woman and, and, and man, uh, woman, you know, took the apple and she ate it first. Then she gave it, I don't know if it was an apple. We were talking about this the other day. It was probably a pomegranate because they didn't have apples. Okay. But the knowledge of the tree, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, God said not to eat from. They went ahead and did it. They were deceived by Satan. The woman took it first, and then Adam took it, and that caused sin to come into all of mankind. Here's what, and God's coming to find them in the garden, and uh, apparently they didn't ha need clothes back then because people had pure minds, and uh, they went and hid themselves afterwards because as soon as they ate the fruit, they felt guilty. And they went and hid themselves and covered themselves with itchy fig leaves. And it says, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man Adam says this. It was the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit to eat and I ate it. So he's blaming, first of all, God. Because you gave me this woman. It's your fault that I went against you. And it's the woman's fault. There you go, man. 
It's the woman's fault every time, so we can just close up shop right now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, don't blame your wives. He is just as much, if not more guilty than she was because he was supposed to be the strong spiritual leader of the relationship in the first place. And he blames God and he blames her. He won't take the acknowledgement of his own sin on himself. And that's how we can tend to respond in a sinful manner to a correction. That's the worst way in which we have the first way, too. The first way of someone blame shifting. And here's the issue. Here's a more practical sense. Like, if we could get better at this in the workplace. Like, I, I used to work, you know, in the secular world. I was a maintenance guy for a long time. And, and being a part of a work team, you know, I, people have gotten scared. Managers have even gotten scared to give their employees feedback. Why? Because people react just kind of emotionally wacky in the first place. So you're almost like, I can't tell this person because they might swing on me or they might hate me or they might talk behind my back. I can't correct. And that's the sad thing is if we could get healthy to a healthy place where people were more self-aware and willing to own up to feedback, we could get to a place where our businesses were healthy and our workplaces are healthy and our family relationships are healthy and we don't have to split and divide and quit our jobs or get fired or, or leave relationships because we can't handle being corrected. We can become more emotionally secure and self-aware, and be willing to own up. Here's what Proverbs says. If you ignore criticism, you will end in poverty and disgrace. If you accept correction, you will be honored. If we could just really believe this, right? If we could really believe that criticism from a, a loving person is good. But we also, we just need to be aware that why, why is it that I get offended so easily by people when they do try to give me correction? And then on the other hand, why am I so harsh when I go give correction? That's another part of it. We've got to learn, again, to be more emotionally mature so we can get to this point. Um, my last point is this. Self-aware people have authentic prayer lives, and their transparency with God leads to transparency with others. We need help with becoming more self-aware. And there's a great example of this, David, in the Bible, in the Psalms. This is a prayer I pray often. Search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God, please help me. Help me to know myself. You know me better than I know myself. I have anxious thoughts. I am worried. I am insecure. Lord, you know my insecurities. Lord, help me. And point out anything in me that offends you. And the interesting thing I thought about this is if God, the most gracious, loving, kind, forgiving being in all of the universe can get offended by us, then I am pretty sure that everybody else around us can get offended by us as well. And so we need to get to this point where we're, we're realizing how is our presence so offensive to people and even to God. Lord, point those things out in me. I need your help. We can't do this on our own. We cannot get to a place, as I said before, it is not us even willing ourselves to get better at this. It's that process of sanctification, meaning to sanctify something is to make it holy, set apart. God is trying to make us holy from the inside out. He's going to use relationships around us and God in us to change us that way. 
This is the last verse I want to give you. Jesus tells us about the spirit who's going to come and help us. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And let me stop there again. As we talked about before, um, evidence of a saved life is that you follow God and you want to keep his word. You want to follow what it says. And it kills you on the inside and it breaks your heart when you go against him. Evidence of uh, saving faith is that you will keep his commandments. Not perfectly, but you'll want to and you'll have a repentant heart when you don't. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another helper. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is our hope in all of this, that he would come into our hearts and convict us when we aren't following his word. But we need to know his word in order to know, am I going against you, God? How do I love you and love other people? That's the greatest question we can ask as people who believe in Jesus. And God will answer us through his word and through his spirit. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus and you're here today and you're like, man, I've tried everything. I need help with this. I am a sinner. If you're willing to admit that, what the Bible says that you and I were both born with this nature that wants to rebel against God and not believe in him and trust our own opinions and ideas, then you can trust Jesus. That's how it starts. A relationship with God starts by trusting in Jesus and then it goes on to live a life that honors God. And then we turn around and we help other people do the same. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you that you're so gracious and kind and loving to us. But thank you that you want to work on us too. Sometimes it's painful the work that you do on us and the people you put in our lives that uh, bring up things about us that we're not ready to deal with yet, that we sometimes justify or we're in denial about. God, I pray that we would leave here as changed people today, that we would take some of this of your word that we have heard and apply it to our lives that we would want to become more self-aware people, emotionally mature and healthy, so that we can honor you in everything that we do and we can learn to love the people around us with grace and mercy and kindness just as much as you've loved us in the same way. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray.